0: So there's this song um, by Hillsong that I absolutely love. It's called Scandalous Grace. And I'm just going to read the lyrics very quickly. But it says, Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. Oh, to be like you, give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you, forever the hope in my heart. Death, where is your sting? Your power is as dead as my sin. The cross has taught me to live. In mercy, my heart now to sing, The day and its trouble shall come. I know that your strength is enough. The scandal of grace, you died in my place. So my soul will live. This is the type of grace that Jesus exhibited constantly. Scandalous grace. He was always being scandalized. For the grace he gave, for the grace he showed, for the grace he lived out. In 1 John 1, 16 through 17, it says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace in truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus' grace was considered scandalous because it, one, broke with tradition, two, did what the law could never do, valued all men greatly and equally, humbled the self-righteous, exalted the lowly, invited all men into God's great celebration, cost a man everything to receive and cost a man everything to maintain it's a costly grace it filtered down the multitude to a remnant grace that says don't come if you're not ready to give everything it was a grace that reached out to sinners in fact pursued sinners entered sinners houses ate and drank with sinners and was received by sinners. It's scandalous because it rejoiced more over a sinner that was saved than a moral person who thought they didn't need to repent. You know, I know many Christians who don't like grace. They don't like to preach about grace. They don't like to talk about grace. They believe that grace will give the church a license to sin, Most people, even in church or outside church, it's just a different type of law, they love rules and regulations. People love traditions, rituals, and rules. It gives them a false sense of security. In fact, there are some people that have made up their own laws. They've gone beyond the Bible with their morality. They have elevated church standards to biblical proportion. I remember being in England and this woman coming in and being so upset that we had a guitar for worship, that we used a guitar because she understood that organs were the only instruments God accepts. Martin Luther was condemned when he first brought music and hymns into the church. I've met women who elevated exercise, healthy eating, and I mean, I've met women that insisted that everyone should be vegans, other ones that have insisted that every Christian should be a vegetarian, and others that have said everyone should be on the Atkins diet and be carnivores. I've met women in the church who have elevated dress coats. You know, no pants in church. In fact, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was scandalized because we allowed women to wear pants at our church. And then we went one step further and allowed them to wear them on Sunday morning without turning them away at the door. Do you realize in the 60s, if a woman wore slacks to church on a Sunday, she'd be turned away at the door? Did you know that? I knew churches that did that. I remember, I'm so old that when I was in school, girls weren't allowed to wear pants. And then I remember, oh, holy day when we were allowed to wear them on rainy days. And that was the only time. And Calvary was considered scandalous because of this grace that we showed. I've met women who elevated a clean house. I had a woman tell me one time that she could tell a godly woman by how clean her house was. That made me really angry. I have met women that felt it was ungodly to wear makeup. And I've met women who felt it was ungodly not to wear makeup. You know, all of those show a lack of grace, that you don't understand the glory of grace. And to these, grace will always be scandalous because it loves those who exercise and those who don't. Those who eat vegan, vegetarian, or rabbits. It loves everybody, no matter what your dress code no matter how clean or dirty your house, or whether you have makeup or no makeup. You see, grace takes away the possibility of competition or making anything but Jesus your security. That you are secure in Jesus alone, not in your works, not in your education, not in the man you married, not in your success, In nothing else but Jesus. Grace takes away the possibility of judging others. You have to give others to the Lord. Because you recognize there but for the grace of God. Go I. Grace though also. Though it takes away competition. Takes away every other form of security. Takes away the power to judge others. Gives us in its place. Value. Healing, humility, exaltation, welcome, placement, sonship, not servitude, new identity, love, security, and divine joy. A joy that cannot be taken away, a joy that grows and grows and grows every single day. In Luke 14, we find this Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home. Now, I love the way Jesus goes into places where he's invited but not wanted. I think that's kind of the case with Washington, D.C. I think Jesus goes there because they offer prayers to him, but I don't think they actually want him. The Pharisees hated the grace that Jesus displayed they were always looking for ways to disqualify, dismiss, and destroy Jesus. They went so far as to set him up. And they did this by inviting a man with dropsy on the Sabbath day to the Pharisee's house. And they put this man on display. Now, dropsy was some kind of disease that filled the body with fluid and the body would be so filled with fluid that the bones would come out of joint so it was extremely painful it's interesting what the pharisees recognized about jesus at different occasions the pharisees coming up to to test him would say lord we know that you don't show favoritism we know that you always speak the truth we know that you have wisdom It's interesting what the enemy knew about Jesus. And they also knew that Jesus could not resist helping, healing, or releasing a man or woman on the Sabbath. No matter what day it was, Jesus could not resist need. Because Jesus valued people more than days, more than rituals, more than rules, and more than traditions. I remember one year, we were, um, my mom put me in charge of a mother daughter banquet. And we had this uh, mother daughter banquet at Doubletree. And we had such a full program. I mean, we were going to bless these women more than they were ever blessed and bless their daughters. And we were trying to get the program going. But you know what? Those women that we wanted to bless would not stop talking, (laughs) they would not pay attention. And you know, they just kept talking and talking, and I was getting a little riled. Like, they're talking and talking, and I'm gonna bless them. (laughs) They need to be quiet so we can begin to bless them. (laughs) And remember, the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. This mother daughter banquet was made for these women. Not these women to conform to your mother-daughter banquet. Let my daughters talk. Let them do whatever they want. They're enjoying themselves. You know, just take some things out of the program. They're feeling that divine release. They're getting to know each other. They're having so much fun. You know, we Tend to value our programs, our rules, our rituals above humans. Jesus never did that. Now, according to the traditions of the religious elite, it was all right to eat on the Sabbath. It was our right to invite people into your house to eat on the Sabbath. But oh no, don't you try to heal any of those people on the Sabbath. Don't pray for them to be healed. Don't seek their welfare. But on the other hand, if one of your animals gets hurt, it's our right to minister healing to your animal. If one of your animals falls into a ditch, it's our right to help the animal. In other words, you can help Animals, but you can't help humans on the Sabbath. This is what it had degenerated to. And it was according to their interpretation of God's law. But remember Luke chapter 10, verse 27 through 28. When the man came to Jesus and he said, he was a lawyer and he said, what is the most important law? And Jesus said, what do you think it is? And he said, I believe it's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, what you've said is right. Now go and do it. Go and do it. But if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to help him on the Sabbath. I don't want him to be one more moment in misery than he's already spent. These Pharisees, did not seek the Lord in every circumstance. In fact, I would describe their life as having the law will travel independently. You know, I got my rules. Now I don't need God. I'm just going to take my rules and we're going to make it through life. So here they are. They've invited this man with dropsy to the meal. And they want to use him to entrap Jesus. They give this man no, no concern, no consideration. It's not about him. He has no value. He is a prop put in place to simply catch and entrap Jesus. And they don't care about his pain, his plight, or his person So Jesus addresses the lawyers of the law and the Pharisees that are in the room. I like to call this the elephant in the room. Jesus does not ignore the main issue. You find wherever Jesus is, he deals with the main issue. He goes right after the heart. And he looks at these men and he says, is it lawful, verse 3, to heal on the Sabbath of chapter 14? I think this is something that they didn't have in their traditions, in their law books. They didn't know where to look it up or to find the answer. You know why? Because they had not experienced anyone who could heal in their whole lifetime. No one had been healed, Sabbath or no Sabbath, before Jesus came. And they didn't know what to do with this one. They knew that healing was a display of God's power. As they said in John chapter 9 to the blind man, glorify God because only God can heal. But they refused to rightly attribute the miracle they saw in Jesus, through Jesus, to God. But healing itself was evidence of God's pleasure in Jesus, of, of God's favoritism to Jesus. Of the fact that everything Jesus did pleased God, was right before God, was righteous. When Jesus asked this question, the lawyers and the Pharisees were speechless. They had no defense in the law or in their oral traditions. They didn't know how to answer it. And Jesus took the man and healed him because Jesus valued this man. And Jesus refused to be intimidated by his critics. He refused to be deterred by their condemnation. I love the fact that Jesus never stops being Jesus. Don't you? He is always Jesus. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Because of the attitude in the room. Because of unpopularity. Because of disapproval. He doesn't change. It does not affect him in the least. Jesus is always Jesus. Always Jesus. Jesus pointed to their hypocrisy and sin. As we talked about earlier. How if they had a donkey or an ox that fell into a pit, they would immediately pull him out, even if it was the Sabbath. In their twisted minds, it was all right to save an animal. It was all right to minister to an animal, but it was sin to minister to a son of Abraham. Grace teaches us that people have value. We're told that God so loved the world the people in the world. God so loved mankind that he gave his only son that no one should perish, but that they could be saved by believing in Jesus and receive everlasting life. Jesus loved mankind so much that he took off the garments of heaven and humbled himself and took on the whole human experience. Imagine being on the right hand of God and being willing to condescend into the in, in the tiny, infinitesimal size of a baby in a womb. Imagine being Jesus and willing to condescend to be birthed in in poverty. To take the lowest position. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, Jesus told us in Matthew twenty twenty eight. You know, we talk about a drop or a fall, but that is the greatest condescension that will ever be at any time. But Jesus loved mankind so much, he volunteered to give his life, his righteousness, his blood for man's redemption. This is grace. Grace values men over traditions, intimidation, or judgment. Grace puts a high value on men and women alike, equally. Grace knows when a sparrow falls and puts greater value on men. But grace values all of creation. Next, we find in Luke 14, verses 7 through 14, that grace humbles the proud and exalts the lowly and undeserving. Jesus noticed and knew the ambition of the self-righteous. They were taking the very best seats because they felt like they deserved the very best seats. Jesus then shared the first of two parables at this feast. And he spoke about a wedding feast where the guests came in and started to take the best seats, but they were asked by the host to remove themselves on those seats and take a lower seat. And it caused public humiliation. Someone else was receiving more value than they were. You know, it's hard for us when somebody else gets more value than we do, isn't it? I, I think I told you this story, but I'll tell you again. I, I was at Sprouts and I was in line and I happen to know almost every checker at Sprouts because I'm so unorganized, I'm in there almost every day because I think I have all the ingredients I need and I never do. That's my plight in life. And so I'm always rushing out to Sprout. And I'm at Sprouts, and I'm in a line and there's a guy in front of me and there's two people in front of him and the other two people already have their thing on the conveyor belt and he's holding his stuff and this man opens up the line, and he says, hey, Cheryl, come over here. And I'm like, oh, great, I've got it in the cart. And I steer my cart this way, and this man who's holding his goods, he goes in front of me, and he lays him on the conveyor belt, and he goes, oh, don't you dare. I know your type. I got here first. And I said, yes, you did. And I want you to go ahead of me. You know, I know I don't deserve that spot. You know, he goes, that's right. But what about those people over there? And I look over at the others, and they're going, you know, they're turning away. And I said, I, I looked at the others. I said, you're welcome to come in front of me. And they just, you know, like, we're not involved. And then he said something else. I can't remember what it was to me. And I said, do you want me to get out of this line? And he said, oh, do what you want to. You always do anyway. I was like, What? Thank you so much for blessing my day. So I went and got the, in the other line. By this, it was like five people deep. And nobody wanted to go in the line I had just come from. Nobody. But I thought of this. He thought that the man at Sprouts was valuing, valuing me more than him. And it incensed him. It incensed him. And that's often how we feel. When we sense that someone is valuing somebody else above us. Everyone has experienced the embarrassment of sitting in the wrong section. I think everyone has. If not, try it. And then you can feel it. No, know I know what they're talking about. But I remember going to court years ago because I didn't have my four-year-old son in a car seat. This was when the rule just was given. He's 25. I'm not worried about it anymore. But when I went to court, everybody looked really scary in that Vista courthouse. So my friend and I—I've told you this story before—with our hair bands and our bows and our dresses, the only ones with dresses, bows, and hair bands—we looked around and we decided to sit in the Spanish-only section. And boy, I'll tell you, they tried to get us out of that section, and we were like, "Yo no sé, yo no sé, no hablas inglés." You know, no hablo in place. We were doing anything we can to stay in that section. But I, I remember those times of, of, you know, different times of my life. Having to take the lower seat. And it is embarrassing. It is humiliating. But Jesus said it was far better to start out at the lower seat. And have the host invite you to a better seat. You know, when you go low, there's nowhere else to go. But up. I like that years ago Brian got the bright idea we stayed in these cottages when we go to creation fest and Brian just decided to have our son and his two friends stay in the same cottage with us one bathroom two rooms and a kitchen of course my son Braden is probably the most social creature you would ever meet so two guys with him is not enough so let's invite three other guys who don't like the cottage they're in And so we've got this little room. I remember getting up in the middle of the night, running to the bathroom desperate, and finding this boy just staring at his mirror, in the mirror. And I said, excuse me. And he goes, oh, no, no problem. You know, I'm fine. Running back and just all night long, sleeping like this, you know. And finally, at 5.30 in the morning, he was gone, and I was able to use the restroom. Then you know what that boy says to me? Man, that was sure awkward last night. (laughs) Oh, awkward. Was it awkward for you? Okay. But I remember Brian, uh, the owner of the cottages is a farmer. (laughs) Brian said to the farmer, yeah, Cheryl's kind of struggling, you know, with having all six boys in the the cottage with us. He says, oh, I've got this special cottage I only reserve for my friends. Why don't you come and bring Cheryl into the cottage? Because I really want you guys to come every year. And if I lose... Cheryl's favor, I might lose the whole bunch. Yeah, because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And he invited us into his special cottage. Now he reserves it for us every year. It was like a dream come true. I was just like, yes, yes. And, and it only sleeps two. It was so nice. It was just mine and Brian's when he came. But it was, I oh, you could only go up. From that place with six boys and my husband, one woman, seven men, one bathroom, one mirror. You could only go up. There was no other place. And, I, you know, I don't know that I would have appreciated that cottage, the, the nicer one, if I would gotten it right away. I think it took seven boys, one bathroom, one mirror, to really appreciate that. But Jesus said it was far better to take the lower seat and have the host invite you to a better seat, to be publicly acknowledged as someone dear, special, or value of the host. Years ago, um, we were invited to a hoity-toity banquet. Bruce Willis was sitting like, just right behind me. If I wanted to reach out like this and touch him, and he didn't have five security guards, I could have. But I remember um, people were coming up to our table. We were sitting with a uh, a man and a woman who owned a radio station, and they were hosts of a radio show. We were sitting with a famous musician and his wife. Um, there and everybody was somebody important, you know. And at this banquet, Muhammad Ali and his wife were there. Another actress, um, as I said, Bruce Willis. You know, some uh, some important congressmen. And so there were all these girls standing in line to get Bruce Willis's autograph, right? And they were standing right behind me. And they looked at my table, noticed famous people, and they looked at me and they go, who are you? Well, you know, everything I was wearing was borrowed, you know, everything, except for the shoes. They were mine. But everything else was borrowed. And I looked at them, I said, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm so sorry. You don't want my autograph. I'm nobody. And they go, oh, okay. Like And they just turn away. And that kept happening over and over again. But my friend, you know, Brian's friend, got up and said, I want to publicly acknowledge my pastor and his wife, the man who married my husband and I because I love them so much. Brian and Cheryl, will you stand up? And there we are. Yeah, take that, Bruce. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But she had us and she acknowledged us. I mean, I was, if I was humbled before, I was humbled to the core. But nobody asked for my autograph still, no, no matter what. Jesus then exhorted the crowds to invite the disenfranchised to their banquets. Not their relatives, not their friends, not their rich neighbors. Because when they invited these people, they expected payback, emotional security, identity, with these people, association, advancement. They were to invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Then they would be blessed by God. Because the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind could never repay. You see, grace puts all men on level ground. It puts the poor, the maimed, the lame, and blind right next to the friends, the relatives, and the rich neighbors. Grace removes the self-righteous from the best seats and gives it to those who cannot repay or help themselves. In James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, we're told that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter then exhorts us in 1 Peter 5, 6 to humble ourselves so that God might exalt us to take the lower seat that God might lift us up. But this equality that grace brings is the reason why so many people resist grace. They want to feel superior to others, but grace makes no allowance for this attitude. As I said before, grace puts all men in the category of poor, maimed, lame, and blind. And until you admit your condition, You cannot be healed, raised up, or exalted to the best seats. In Revelation 3.17, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. And then he said, I counsel you to buy from me, to get your security, to get your needs from me. There has to be that recognition that we are the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And until we admit this deficit in our character, this this reality that we don't deserve the best seeds, we don't deserve the grace that is in Christ Jesus we will never know the grace or the glory of grace. Grace invites everyone into God's banquet, Luke 14, 15 through 24. The second parable in the Pharisee's house was about a great banquet. And the master called his servants and told them to tell those invited that it was time and that all things were ready. Everything was prepared. And when the servants went to those who were invited, Those invited had excuses for not going because they did not appreciate what was being offered to them. They didn't appreciate the banquet, the food, all the preparation. They were content with what they already had and felt no need. They didn't want the association. They didn't want the enrichment. They didn't want the identity. They had need of nothing. One begged off because he had bought a new piece of ground and wanted to see it. So possessions were more important to him than this banquet. He wanted to stay with his possessions. Another had just bought five oxen and wanted to train them. His work was more important than the banquet. He couldn't miss work for the banquet. The third guest had just married and didn't want to leave his wife to come. Relationship was more important to him than the master's banquet. So the master then instructed his servants to go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. The servants did as they were commanded and informed the master that there was still room. And he commanded his servants to go outside the town, go to the highways, go to the byways, go to the foreigners people that aren't even related to us, to the different cultures, and compel them to come in. Now, parables were used by Jesus to communicate heavenly realities so that those who wanted to hear would really listen intently and understand, and those who didn't want to understand would only hear and then be confused. But this parable illustrated the grace of God. God's sent in his invitation to the most deserving, the descendants of Abraham, the people of the law. But those deserving of the invitation did not value grace, so they did not come. Because possessions became more important to them. Work or works became more important than a banquet that God was throwing And relationships were more important than a banquet of grace. But God has commanded his servants. The disciples went into the streets and lanes like Jesus. And they compelled the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Those who know they have deficits, problems, issues. Those who know they don't deserve to come to this great banquet. He compelled those in the highways and byways because God desires to fill his house. You see, God invites the undeserving, the disenfranchised, the distant to his banquet of grace. As Jesus leaves the Pharisee's house, great multitudes follow him. In Luke 14, 25 through 35. And Jesus turns and speaks to this multitude about the cost of grace. You know, there's this phrase, cheap grace. And there are people who say, I'm just going to sin because God's going to forgive it anyway. That's, That's someone without an understanding of grace because grace is costly. It costs Jesus his life, his blood, his position in heaven. It costs Jesus everything. It costs God his own son. Many... Receive grace or start to receive grace until they realize there's a cost. Until they realize it might cost them relationships or that it will cost them hardship, rejection, that it will cost them time and effort and their very life. It costs relationships because Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If you value any relationship above Jesus Christ, you cannot be his disciple because at some point those relationships will pull you back from following Jesus. In a few chapters earlier, Jesus called a man and he said, let me go back first And tell my family. And Jesus said, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of discipleship. You see, if you value those relationships, if you put them on equal par with your relationship with Jesus, at some point, they will call you back from service for Jesus. They will call you out of grace. Grace requires that every other relationship pale in comparison, in commitment, and in dedication to Jesus. When anything comes in conflict with your relationship to Jesus, whether it be relatives or friends, work, finances, possessions, persecution, Jesus needs to be your first choice. I am committed to Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Those who are not prepared for the cost do not finish the building. They never fully become everything God intends them to come. There's vulnerabilities in their life. There are windows missing. There are walls that have never been put up. There's no carpeting. There's no plumbing. There's no lighting in the house. Because they never counted the cost. And so the spiritual building, the temple that God wanted to build with their lives is never finished. People who do not count the cost of serving Jesus do not win the war. They never have complete victory over the enemy, the world, or their flesh. Because they don't count the cost. People who do not realize there's a cost lose the flavor of salt because they compromise because they're always making compromises so that they can keep both Jesus and a bit of the world or a bit of their possessions or a bit of the relationships and they lose the flavor of salt and in this way they might be followers of Jesus they might be admirers of Jesus they might be believers in Jesus but they cannot be Jesus' disciple. They cannot be effective witnesses for Jesus. They cannot be dynamically used for Jesus. Grace is not cheap and does not come cheaply to any of us. It costs us everything. Having said this, Jesus goes into another house So in chapter 14, we saw the house of the self-righteous, the house of the Pharisees, where they were looking to entrap Jesus. But this other house he goes into, it's a house of tax collectors and sinners. And in this house, Jesus sits down with tax collectors and sinners. And we're told that these tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. They weren't there to criticize or critique but to listen and to get as close to him as possible. This greatly upset the Pharisees and scribes and they began to murmur about Jesus as they looked on and they said this, this man receives. Receives, what is it to receive? He lets these sinners and tax collectors come to him. He actually welcomes them. He treats them with value, and he eats with them. In that Eastern culture, to eat with sinners was to fellowship or become one with them. Because in, still, I love that Israel has retained so much of its history, even in the way um, their banquets are. They still have the, the different, you know, the hummus and the different dips and they, they give you the bread, the unleavened bread, and you're dipping it. One is olive oil and his that sends me to heaven That makes me come back to earth as soon as I swallow. I just love the flavor of it. It's so delicious. But it's still, you're all dipping from this same bowl. And you know, there are always double dippers. So you're taking in some of their germs and saliva. For some of you that are germaphobics, you're going, Ooh! But if you understood even in, you know, your air, your skin absorbing, you are, you are getting a lot of skin cells you didn't want. But it was seen and interpreted as an endorsement of the person or sin, as if Jesus was condoning it. But even though Jesus received sinners and tax collectors, they never stayed that way. They never left his presence the way they came in. In a few weeks, we'll study about Zacchaeus. And he's a tax collector. And when he meets Jesus, his life is absolutely transformed. Matthew was a tax collector. He left his tax office to follow Jesus. He was never the same. Peter was a gruff old fisherman, very ambitious, very self-centered. He was transformed in the presence of Jesus. The sons of thunder, James and John, John became the disciple of love. Jesus receives sinners, but they leave cleansed and changed. Paul speaking to the Corinthians said, There are in this world the the homosexuals, the defiled, the murderers, the liars. And he goes into this this whole scandalous list of different um, sins and lifestyles. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were changed by Jesus. Jesus absolutely transforms to such a degree that he said to Peter, what God has cleansed, let no man call common. Don't take value away from that which God has cleansed. In response to the criticism of these Pharisees, Jesus tells three parables. And remember parable is a story that illustrates heavenly realities and the story is of a lost sheep verses 4 through 7 a lost coin verses 9 and 10 and a lost son verses 11 through 32 in each of these parables there are things that aren't lost 99 sheep stay in the pen nine silver coins are still where they're supposed to be and there's a son that never leaves home In each of these parables, there is a relentless search for the one that is lost. There's a search in the wilderness, there's a search in a house, and there's a search on the road. There is no satisfaction, resignation in each of these parables until the lost is found. The shepherd searches until he finds that sheep. The woman searches until she finds that lost coin. The father watches the road until he sees his son. Each was lost in a different place wilderness, house, and to worldly indulgences, prodigal living. They were lost by different people, and yet no shame is ascribed to the person who lost something. The shepherd is not condemned or blamed for the lost sheep, the woman is not blamed or accused for the lost coin. And the father is not blamed or accused for the prodigal. Different means are employed to find the lost. For the shepherd, there is a leaving. For the woman, there is a cleaning. For the father, there is an obsessive watching of the road. And then in each of the three parables, there is a shared joy. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice, verse 6. The woman calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice, verse 10. The father puts a robe on the son that is returned. He gives him a new ring, sandals on his feet, has a banquet in his honor, and kills the fatted calf. Grace goes relentlessly after the lost. Grace refuses to be satisfied with the secured The banquet house is not filled yet. Grace pursues after the lost. Grace will go to great lengths to bring back the lost. Jesus went to where the lost were. He went to the wilderness. He went to the house. He went to the road. He came into the world. He walked along its shores. He went into houses, to banquets, to synagogues towns and villages. Grace will not rest until the lost is returned. You know, sometimes you might be able to sleep at night even though you've got a prodigal, but grace never sleeps. Grace can't rest until that prodigal is returned. Grace employs different means to reclaim the lost. The shepherd not only went into the wilderness, but he picked up the sheep and carried the sheep on his shoulders. That's what it took to reclaim this lost, was to go after him and to pick him up, embrace him and put him on his shoulders and walk him back. The woman who employed a light, she had to bring a light to her house and shine it in every corner of her house and sweep out the house. The father had to let his son go and give him the financial backing to fulfill all his ambition and lust. He had to let this son go. So grace will do whatever is necessary. Search out, clean out, give out, watch and wait. Grace employs searching out the promises of God. Grace employs cleansing our own heart. Grace employs prayers and waiting. Grace rejoices over the loss that is found. Divine joy, all of heaven erupting with joy. Because all of heaven knows the cost of grace. They know that this one was ransomed from the grip of death. I recently watched a YouTube on eagles. It was really unnerving. Because it showed this eagle and it showed these little wolf puppies And the mom had left them to get some food. And she saw the eagle. And of course, you know, the camera pans to the mother. And she's looking up. And it pans to the eagle. And it's swirling around. And then it pans to the three little puppies that are playing that don't realize what's happening. And then the eagle starts coming down. And the mother sees. And she's jumping down. And she's running as fast as she can. And the next thing you know, the eagle swoops down and grabs this little pup and goes flying off with it. And of course, as if I needed commentary, and that pup did not live. Ah! You know, I was already like, I want the puppy back, you know. But I was thinking that heaven sees the eagle and it sees the little pups playing. Heaven sees Satan for the lion he is. And he, it sees Satan prowling and looking to devour his prey. And then they watch as Jesus, the king of glory, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the greater lion, ransoms the lost, binds up their wounds and brings healing and restoration and health to them. In 1 Peter 1.12, it says that angels marvel and desire to look into the salvation of men. They're just kind of like, why? Why? You are so magnificent. You are so great. Why? You love these men so much. Why? In fact, the word used for angels' desire to look into these things is they they obsessively or they obsess over how to understand. They're watching. The third parable about this son really brings grace home, doesn't it? The father has two sons. One is righteous, the other unrighteous. One son disqualifies himself. He makes this bed. He asks and receives his inheritance, his full inheritance. He is not entitled to anything else or more from his father. He deserts his father. He leaves his father and journeys to a far country. He is irresponsible and wasteful. He spends his entire allotment. He is self-indulgent. He uses all the money that his father saved up that his father worked hard for on bad things on disreputable things, on things his father would never approve of, all of it. Then we're told that he actually joins himself when everything is squandered. Instead of returning to his father, he joins himself with the citizens of that other country. He becomes one with them. He changes nationalities. Now, we would think, leave him to his fate. He deserves what he got. He made his bed. He needs to lie in it. And we're told that the prodigal son began to be in want. There was a journey. There was a lifestyle. There was a process necessary to bring this son to his senses. When he began to be in want, he did not return. But he joined himself to the citizens of that country. He hired himself out of as a servant to feed the swine and his life was so bad that he began to long for the pig's food. Swine food looked really good to him. God knows what it will take to bring the lost back home. I think too often that we interrupt the process of grace Grace often gives that person everything that he always thought he wanted and lets them feel the lameness, the emptiness, the dissatisfaction. Lets it all be taken away. In verse 17, we're told that it was at this time that he came to his senses. This phrase, came to his senses, is used two other times in the Old Testament, speaking of prodigals. It was a term that I circled and I would pray and pray and pray over two of my children, that they would come to their senses. How did this son come to his senses? Suddenly, he realized how bad his life had become. He realized where he was at. See, he didn't realize how bad it was for so long. I mean, he hires him. he joins the other country. He hires himself as a servant. He's hungry. He's in want. There's a famine in this country. I mean, it's a really dumb thing to become a citizen of a starving country. That's just not a wise idea. But that's what he does. And then he's living among pigs. He's living with pigs. Sometimes that's what it takes to live with pigs before someone comes to their senses. And then he began to realize how rich his life had been with his father, how good he had had it before when he had been in his father's house, how great his father's love had been, how kind his father's voice had been, How delicious and ample and abundant his father's food had been. How wanted, how welcomed, how comfortable his bed, his room, his placement had been. He realized how undeserving he was of his father's goodness and kindness and love. And he was willing at this point to go back as a servant on whatever terms his father deemed, he was willing to accept the terms just to be in his father's house. He wasn't anymore insisting on his entitlements or what he felt he deserved. He was now willing to place himself completely under his father. And he rehearsed what he would say to his father. He rehearsed that he would say, that he was not, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He rehearsed. Imagine the condition that this son returned in. He left with his signet ring. He left robust, well-fed, dressed well, good-looking, and he returned wasted in want, Withered, starving, looking like a homeless man, no doubt with a wretched smell like pigs, but repentant, sorry for what he had done, ready to confess and admit his wrong, willing to take whatever his father would offer, appreciative of all his father was, all his father had, and all his father had done. And wanting more than anything just to be in his father's house. Neither the place the son had been or the process the son had experienced. The lifestyle that had been his made any difference to the father. The son was anticipated. The father was watching for him. Verse 20. The father obsessively watched the road. And recognized his son, even when he was a great way off. And the father went running to meet the son, even when he was a great way off. The son was welcomed. The son was embraced. The father had compassion on him, fell on his neck, kissed him. The father restored him, verse 22, best robe, ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. The father rejoiced over him, verse 23, ordered the fatted calf, called for feast, publicly acknowledged him. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was the trophy at that banquet. He was the guest of honor. The banquet was all about the son's return. And the father was Mary. But there's one more character in this scenario. There's the older brother who is working in the field, working to please his father. Thinking that by his productivity, he will get the father's favor. He hears the music. He sees the dancing. He makes inquiries as to what is going on. He's told, your brother has come and because he has received him, the father received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. This brother heard the merriment, saw the dancing, asked questions, but became angry. He refused to go into the banquet or be a part of it. He dismissed his father's appeal. He rehearsed his own righteousness rather than feeling that he's undeserving. He tells his father why he's so deserving. I've served you many years. This is a work basis. I've never transgressed your commandment. He compared himself with his sinful brother. He complained about his father's actions. I never got a goat. You never rejoiced over me in this way. My brother wasted his life with prodigal living with prostitutes and such. The brother, because he trusted in his own righteousness, could never enter into the feast. He could never enjoy the banquet. He could never embrace his father's joy. And he could never inherit everything that the father had for him. The father says, you have been with me all my life and everything I have is yours. Why can't you rejoice over this? Now, think about this. This son still hadn't gotten everything he was entitled to. He was the other son. But in order for his prodigal brother to come in, you see, the father took the signet ring, probably the other brother's signet ring, And put it on the lost. He took a robe. Where did that robe come from? The other brother's inheritance. And put it on the son. The fatted calf. He gave it to the one who had been lost. And now was found. This older brother's inheritance. Was diminished. In order to bring. The prodigal in. And the older brother did not want to give up anything for the prodigal. You see, we want prodigals. We want them to come, but we don't want to give anything up. The prodigal, it will cost for the prodigal to come home. This older brother found grace scandalous because it was received Rescued, restorative, and rewarded to the lost. Today, we are here because of God's great grace. None of us has worked hard enough, earned, or lived up to the standard of God's righteousness. Only Jesus has lived as we should. But Jesus, by his life and by his death, Brought grace to our lives. Now, by grace, we who were the maimed, the lame, the blind, the poor, have been received, have been rescued, have been restored, have been rewarded. And there is no other way to God but through grace. Our own righteous regard for ourselves and our goodness and our righteousness will leave us out in the field of works and leave us out of the feast of joy. This is the scandalous grace that Jesus brought, grace that receives prodigals. This is the grace that God is calling us to embrace today, this scandalous grace. And when you embrace this scandalous grace, you will have esteem and value for people lost and found. This grace will humiliate you and then exalt you. This grace will bring you into God's eternal and great banquet, but this grace will cost you relationships, possessions, and position but it will give you a house and it will give you the victory and it will bring you ultimately in the joy and rejoicing of heaven. By the grace of Jesus Christ, receive this scandalous grace and pray that it might so fill your frame that this is the grace you know. This is the grace you understand. And this is the grace you give. A stand up. That was grace. Lord, I thank you for my sisters. My precious sisters. Lord, we are all one in this room. Lord, we were all poor. We were all maimed. We all had deficits. We've all been in places we should never have been. And we've all know what it's like to covet the swine's food. But Lord, we thank you that you came, that you searched for us and you picked us up and carried us on your shoulders. That Lord, you lit the light in the house and you searched every corner and swept it out until you found us. Lord, we thank you that you obsessively watched the road. Lord, you let us go through the process, the process that we needed to bring us to our senses, Lord. And Lord, then when we came back, you embraced us. Lord, you held a banquet for us. You put the signet ring on our finger to identify us as your own and gave us the coat of belonging to your house. Lord, identifying us as your daughters. Lord, thank you for this great, great grace. Lord, may we not lose sight of the grace that you have given us through Jesus Christ, that we might be filled to the fullest capacity with this great grace, this great scandalous grace, that we might pour it out on anyone and everyone over and over and over again. And Lord, when our grace begins to run out, fill us again so that we can pour out even more grace, we ask this in Jesus' name. And because of the great grace shown to us by our Savior, our Sovereign, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus.